0: Our head and wonder what in the world is Jesus talking about in this moment. And this is another reason we're doing this series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. What if you haven't been here in a while, or maybe you're visiting, what we're doing with this series, we're taking all four gospels. And we're attempting to walk through them as chronologically as possible to get this beautiful image of Jesus Christ, His life, His ministry, His teaching, His death, and His resurrection. And so in doing this series, we're going to come across some passages like this morning that can be a little difficult to understand and a little difficult to understand how it applies to our life. And sometimes we come across passages which are countercultural to our world today and as they were in Jesus' day. But because we're doing this series, it doesn't allow us to skip hard passages. It doesn't allow us to skip things that are difficult to understand or hard to apply. So let's read it first, and then we'll walk through it and unpack it and see how it applies to all of us here this morning. The Word of the Lord says from Matthew chapter 12, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Then jumping to the Gospel of Luke chapter 11 Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, "Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed, but he said, "Blessed are those. Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it." When it comes to difficult passages in Scripture, when you're doing your own personal Bible study, your own quiet time, your own devotional time, uh, one way to help unpack difficult passages is to go into context. And what that means is to not just read like a verse or a clump of Scripture, but read what came before it, what led up to that, and then read what comes after that verse, because it all is meant to go together and to reveal things about God and things about a relationship with God. Now, the sequence of events in Matthew chapter 12 are leading to what Jesus is teaching here. What happens after this event, even though it's sequential, it doesn't actually help us understand what Jesus is saying. So in Matthew chapter 12... The context of the chapter is confrontation. It's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. And it begins at the beginning of the chapter where the Pharisees and scribes call Jesus' disciples out for breaking their Sabbath regulations. It eventually comes to full blow in verses 22 through 32 when the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing the things he did, of casting out demons and the teachings and the miracles. They accuse him of being able to do that because the power of Satan is residing in Jesus. So this leads Jesus to teach that the words that we say, and he's more pointing to the Pharisees and scribes, but it's a lesson for us too. The words that we say and the words that we use actually reveal what is in our heart. So what we say about people, what we say about circumstances and situations, about politicians Reveal what's in our heart. Finally, they ask Jesus to give him, give them a sign, and Jesus denies their uh, request. And instead, he points to the sign of the prophet Jonah in verse 39, and pointing to Jesus' death and eventually his resurre- rex- resurrection. I'll get the words out here in a second. And then he points to the sign of the queen of the south in verse 42. Using both of these, he's showing that the Ninevites and this Gentile queen... They heard the word of God, they repented, and they eventually worshipped the one true God. It's from this context of this chapter that Jesus teaches us this parable concerning demons. Our focus this morning is called filling the void. First thing we have to understand about Satan and demons is this. They're real. C.S. Lewis writes in his his book, The Screwtape Letters, The one major error that believers can have is to disbelieve their existence. We were on vacation a couple weeks ago with Jamie's family, and they had this massive table that we're all sitting at for dinner. And so I'm sitting at one end by Jamie's older brother and and his wife, and it must have been taco night or something. We're eating, and their youngest daughter, my youngest niece, speaks up she raises her voice and she says hey i have something to tell everyone i need everyone to be quiet i need you to listen so we all get quiet we kept eating of course but we get quiet and then she makes the announcement my room at home my bedroom is haunted by a ghost and she begins going on and on and rambling and rambling and, and I, I did what some people do to preachers i hope nobody does it here, but i i was hearing but not listening right I I could hear her voice, but I wasn't really paying attention to what was coming out of her mouth. And as she kept going on and on and on, I leaned over to her father, Jamie's older brother, and I asked him a very serious question. I said, would it help if I told her that ghosts aren't real but demons are? And he looked at me and said, no, (laughs) that will not help at all. But I was just trying to be a loving uncle. You know, I was trying to be helpful. I was trying to steer her towards truth. Satan and his demons are real. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time to fix fixate on them because they don't deserve our time. They don't deserve our worship. But the Bible does point out some things that we can learn about demons, and we can learn about Satan. Satan and demons are fallen angels. They have rebelled against God, and God sent them down to earth to roam the earth. The Scripture also points out that there are, in fact, two types of demons. There's one type of demon that is roaming the earth at this current moment, and there's another type of demon that is already confined in hell. And the book of Revelation reveals at some point in time, the demons that are confined in hell are going to be released to bring affliction upon the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Like angels, demons are spiritual beings. Unlike God, demons and Satan are not omnipresent. They're not omniscient, and they're not omnipotent. And what that means is Satan and demons are not everywhere at once. They do not have absolute knowledge, and they do not have absolute power. What we learn about the demons' activity in Scripture is that they can inflict illness. They can inflict disease. They can influence people's minds. They can take possession of people, and they can deceive people and nations. And I shouldn't let that uh, begin to cause fear to grow in your heart and mind, because through the resurrection, the power of the demons has been conquered. And the Bible tells us on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to pronounce judgment and cast them all into the lake of fire. But until they are cast, the Bible says they are here to produce havoc. They're here to produce havoc on individuals, who are made in the image and likeness of God. That was Satan's whole plan when you go back to Genesis chapter 3. One final note if you are a child of God, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, here's an incredible promise you cannot be possessed by a demon. The alternative, though, is if you're not a child of God and you do not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can be possessed. As children of God, we can't be possessed, but we can be influenced by demons and Satan. And this is what our passage here in Matthew 12 is pointing to. It's pointing back to the context. In chapter 12, the scribes and Pharisees are rejecting the teaching of Jesus Christ. They're rejecting the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're rejecting His healings and His miracles. Therefore, we can conclude they're without the Holy Spirit. They've also rejected the ministry of John the Baptist, which was a ministry calling people to repent and prepare the way for the Lord. It's from this context that Jesus tells this parable about demonic activity. It begins there in verse uh, 43, speaking of an unclean spirit. This is Matthew's way of pointing to demons. So this unclean spirit has left an an individual... Most likely due to some sort of exorcism. Yes, exorcisms are real. They happen in Scripture. And this is pointing back to the Pharisees' accusation that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan in verse 24. So this demon leaves this individual. And Scripture says in verse 43 that it wanders through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Waterless places speaks of wilderness and desert. It was a common Jewish belief that that's where demons... Resided. They resided in the dry places. They resided in the places where no one would go until they finally came and possessed an individual. Verse 43 is pointing out that this individual, this man, has been freed of this possession from a demon. Then in verse 44, we learn that the individual, what the individual is now doing, now that he is free. He's beginning to get his life in order. He's beginning to make changes. He's beginning to clean up his his act. He stops doing the things that he knows to be wrong. The word house is to speak of that individual because that is where the demon dwelled. It was his house. And so while the man is cleaning up his life, this demon decides that it doesn't like being in waterless places anymore. So it's going to go back to its old home. It's going to go back to this individual where it originally dwelled. And when it returns, it finds that, hey, this guy's really cleaned up his life. Look at all this new space. Look how empty it is in here. It's so empty and clean. I'm going to go find seven demon buddies to come back and live with me and this man. So we have demon squatters now, right? Eight demons are now living and residing in this one man, and Scripture says that the man, even though he cleaned up his life, he emptied it, he swept it, he's now worse off than he ever was. And Jesus drives it home that this will be the fate of this generation or any generation, that if they don't do the one thing that this possessed man didn't do, they'll be worse off than in the beginning. What's that one thing? Again, going back into context, what Jesus has just been talking about. The Ninevites, when they heard the word of God spoken through the prophet Jonah, they repented, and they turned to God. This man that is now possessed by eight demons, he reshaped his life, but he never repented from his former life. Even though he encountered the power of God through his initial exorcism, In Luke's rendering of the story, Luke drives home the point of verses 27 and 28 of chapter 11, which we're going to look at here in a second. But now that we've unpacked the package, we need to understand what is the application of this passage. The first thing we need to understand is release is not the same as being reformed. The word reformation is only found one time in Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. The word means to set straight to improve, to be restored, to become a new creation. The thought and theology of reformation we found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And we might think of like the great reformation coming through Martin Luther, but the reality of what Scripture points out is the great reformation will come in the end when Christ returns to make all things new. But how this relates to our passage is this man has been released from demonic possession but he does not repent. This man's unclean past from the demon had been cleaned out and then the man did everything in his power to clean up his life, but he never filled his mind and his heart with what he needed as the spirit of God. The only way an individual can receive the Holy Spirit is this. You first have to recognize that we're all sinners. Sin means that we miss God's holiness, his perfection. We have to recognize the sin in our life. And then we have to recognize we can't do anything about it, but we need the forgiveness of God found only in Jesus Christ. And so we confess our need for forgiveness. We confess our need for a Lord and a Savior. We confess our need for Jesus to be in our life. And this is what God does. He forgives us. He adopts us. And then he deposits his spirit inside of his children. This man has been released. He has been freed from the influences of Satan. But instead of repenting and turning to the power of God, which was demonstrated in his life, he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go clean up my life. I'm going to do this under my own power. Today, it would be like someone dealing with an addiction. Eventually, they recognize that they have something in their life that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We should stop. We should get away from these problems we have. And so they start to become clean. They start to move away from those addictions. But here's the thing. If they don't fill their time with a thing that they're releasing, then what's going to happen is they're either going to fall back into it or fall into something worse. If we were to ask, take this into the world of, of alcoholics. Most alcoholics conclude that they need to stop drinking because there's been some major event, some tragic event in their life, or loved ones come and confront them. And so they go through a process, and they begin to get clean and move away from that. Problem is, if they don't fill themselves with God, it's just going to become a different problem. If you look at the original 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you would see that it begins with an understanding that the individual is powerless To control their actions, they are powerless to control their sin, and they are called to turn to God, the ultimate power, to aid them in their pursuit. So they're becoming free and void of this influence that Satan has brought into their life, and they're becoming empowered by the Spirit of God in order to become better. This is a great image of what this man here in the parable did not do. He has been freed from the influence, but instead of seeking the power of God, he sought to take matters into his own hands. He did not adhere to the teachings of Christ. If the Son sets you free. If the Son sets you free. Why? Because we can't free ourselves. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This man in the the image of the Pharisees and the scribes and some of the Jewish people and all who heard the words of Christ but did not respond. All who saw the power of God in him and coming out of him and did not repent. The next thing we can learn from this parable is religion is not the same as being redeemed. This man was released, and then he got busy doing stuff. Did you catch that? He started emptying the house and sweeping the house and putting the house in order, putting his life. He did all the things he thought he should do versus the thing he knew he shouldn't do. He cleaned out his life, he got it in order, but all under his own power. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is man's way to work himself to God. And so I'm going to come up with all these lists on things I should and shouldn't do, and I'm going to follow this list so I can prove to God that he deserves to let me into heaven. That's religion. Christianity, on the other hand, is a relationship. Christianity isn't about us working our way to God, but God already doing the work so we can come to Him. So religion is man's way to God. Christianity is God's way to Himself. The Pharisees and scribes whom Jesus is talking to in this passage, they were religious. They had their laws. They had their rules. They had their traditions. They had their regulations. This was brought up in the beginning in chapter 12 concerning the Sabbath regulations and the violation of it. The thing about religious people that we see in scriptures, religious people are very good at looking clean on the outside, but the reality is they are void of God on the inside. Religious people have the rules to empty and clean out their life and get their things and life in order, but their heart is empty. And if the heart and life of an individual does not have the Holy Spirit, then they are defenseless against the schemes of Satan. This is what verse 45 is pointing out. Douglas O'Donnell paraphrases Jesus like this Religion won't save you from the final judgment. Outward reform will not do. And neutrality towards Jesus is not neutral. The choice is this stay with this evil generation or embrace Jesus. So, this is why if anybody's here this morning and your whole goal in life is you're just going to be a good person, you're just going to do good things, thinking that'll do it, that'll get me into heaven reality of what Scripture says is all the good that you can do is meaningless because it does not earn your way to the Father. The only way to heaven is to repent and turn to God. Now, I do believe there are things that Christians should and shouldn't do. I, and I, I don't want to put out a list, but there's some things that Christians should and shouldn't do, and Scripture points that out as well. Apostle Paul was led to write, there are actions and activities That a believer should not partake in, especially when among unbelievers. And this isn't to prove to unbelievers that we are a righteous individual or, or we're living righteously before God. But it's rather to show unbelievers that we actually love them. And we don't want to create a stumbling block to them in coming to Jesus Christ. Instead of pushing them away from Christ, we want to live a life. And by our actions and activities and the things we do, we want to draw them to Christ. So, yeah, there are things we should and shouldn't do, but I want to warn you from creating your own list of righteousness because that's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes did. They had their righteous list. You do this and you don't do that. Next thing we see is removal is not the same as being righteous. This man had a demon removed, and then he started removing things from his life, but he never found the righteousness of Christ. Because if he had the righteousness of Christ, then he would have had the Holy Spirit, and then there would have been no way for these eight demons to come and dwell into his life. See, we can remove things from our life, but if we don't fill it with the righteousness of Christ, we're going to fill it with something else. And we may take things out we know we shouldn't do, which is fine, but what are we going to fill that with? What are we going to fill that void with? When it comes to believers, again, I'm not talking about demonic possession. I'm talking about habits activities we partake in, the things we know we should free ourselves from. For example, most of us have cell phones. Richard has the best one now, right, Richard? (laughs) Uh, And so sometimes, or some of us here, you you play video games. And so sometimes we feel, you know what, I really am spending too much time on my phone. I'm really spending too much time playing video games. So we decide we're going to start to lessen that time. We're going to draw back. We're not going to get on our phone or social media or the computer every minute of the day. We're not going to check who liked our post or, or who uh, told us happy birthday through Facebook. Here's the thing. When we start removing things, you have to fill it with something else. Because you may stop playing video games. You may stop getting on your phone all the time. But then you'll just start binge watching TV shows. And so what we learn in this passage, that if we remove things, and God is saying there's something in our life that needs to be taken, then we have to fill it with the righteousness of Christ. We have to fill it with things that are right before God and approving towards God. So we take something out, and I'm going to add reading the Bible more. I'm going to read books that are helping my spiritual growth and my relationship with God. William Barclay writes, Our aim is not the mere absence of evil action. It is the positive presence of the work of Christ. Finally, let's jump to Luke chapter 11. Luke ends this parable in Luke 11, verse 27. As he, this is Jesus, said these things, a woman in a crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus just teaches about this demonic activity and this demonic possession. And upon teaching about demons possessing people, there's some unnamed woman in the crowd who decides this is the most opportune time for me to say something for everyone to hear. And so she pronounces a blessing upon Jesus' mother, Mary, which seems like a weird thing to do. But what she's really saying is that Jesus is such a good boy, and his mother should be so proud of the man that he has become. But Jesus takes this moment, and he never misses a moment to give a teaching lesson, and he turns her comments into something we can learn. He says, Instead of me being blessed, blessed are those who not only hear the word of God, but they keep it. That word keep means they guard it. They obey it. They value it greatly. They treasure it. What Jesus is telling us is we want to be, a, we want to be not the individual who was freed and then became repossessed, who became worse off. And when it comes to the word of God, we not only need to listen to it, we not only need to hear it, but we've got to apply it. This statement is something Jesus can say numerous times throughout his ministry. And this is what we learn. Reformation, redemption, righteousness is only found through transformational discipleship. Mary was blessed and the reason Mary was blessed, because when God spoke the word over her, she was obedient to it. She applied it. She lived it. And Jesus says here in Luke chapter 11, verse 29, we are blessed only when we apply the word of God into our life. And so if we hear God speaking to us about something, And we fail to respond. And what Jesus is telling us here, what God is saying, is that we're going to miss the blessings of God. When commentator writes, discipleship is not simply about eliminating bad habits, but filling the void with Jesus himself. So if we're here and we're wrestling something, the answer is to make a change. But in making a change, we fill that with Jesus. We seek after him. We worship him. We meditate on him. We fill it with the word of God. We fill it with the works of the kingdom of God. this passage, though, dealing with demonic possession is a key to what Paul writes to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what we're being told, what God is telling us, is that our purpose in life, what we're being called to, is to live a life that is acceptable to God. That word acceptable means to be pleasing to Him. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told whatever we do, And wherever we are, even if we're not in church, but wherever we are, wherever we go, that we are to make it our aim to please Him. And we do this because this is our calling on life. We are called to please God. And when we please God by what we do in our life, we glorify Him. That means we lift Him up. We put Him on the billboard, We put him on display. That's what glorifying God is. And the Bible says we are called to do this because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the beauty of this transformation that this man did not have in our passage this morning, the beauty of the transformation in our own life is this. It's not by our power. It's by the power of God living inside every single believer, the Holy Spirit, which allows us to be transformed and become more like Christ, have the mind of Christ, walk like Christ did, and keep in step with the Spirit. And the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given His divine power. He has granted to us all things which pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him being Jesus who called us to His own glory and His excellence. So what that means, if you're a child of God here this morning, good news, you can't be possessed by a demon. You can be influenced but not possessed, but God has put his spirit inside of you to empower you to glorify him. And so our whole life now as Christians is to please God, to raise him high, allow him to be seen in our life, so when other people see the way we live our life, yeah, it might be clean and void of some of the things they do, they ask us this question, Why do you do that? Or why don't you do this? And we can tell them. Because God loves me. And I'm responding to his love by the way I live my life. Our battle with sin is a battle, praise the Lord, that has already been won through Jesus Christ. We simply have to submit to his lordship, And submit to his leadership over our lives. And maybe this is where you are this morning. Maybe you need to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come before God and say, God, I am a sinner and I am in need of your forgiveness. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior and I want the gift of eternal life. And when we come before God, no matter what our past is like, no matter what we've done, you know what God does when he hears us say those things to him? I love you. And you're forgiven as we sang that song, I'm for you. And now, I'm with you. So, If you're here this morning and you need to accept Jesus Christ, I want to tell you how to do it. The Bible makes it very simple. We admit to God that we're a sinner. We tell God, God, I'm a sinner. I fall short of your holiness. And there's nothing I can do in my life to remove my sin problem. And then we tell God, but God, I believe you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins, and he did. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose again, that he shows he has full authority over death and full authority to forgive me for all of my sins, past, present, and future, and I believe that to be true. And the Bible says, finally, when we believe that in our heart, we have to confess it with our mouth, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And that word confess that comes from Romans chapter 10 means you have to make it publicly known. It's not a secret. And so if you're here this morning, you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, this is why we come to this time of invitation. to Come down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. it be an incredible moment. Just final warning. If you're here this morning, you do not have Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior you do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then you are going to be susceptible to every attack from Satan. You're defenseless. But that can change right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for empowering us to do things we can't do on our own. And Lord, thank you that you revealed your law to show us what sin is and to reveal the sin in our life, but then you gave us Jesus that we might be free. Father, there's someone here this morning who has yet to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or yet to make it publicly known that they believe. I pray that in this moment they would come down and do that. Father, you know that there's temptations that come in our life. There are things that Satan and the demons try to do to, to pull us from you, give us the power to seek after you and run to you. I thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us. You don't leave us alone. To fight these battles. Matter of fact, your word says that the battle belongs to you. And I know there's not a person in this room that's not dealing with something, not struggling in some area of life. Father, help us to turn to you. Help us to turn those struggles into moments where we can just seek after you and be with you in your presence. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence once again. Pray your kingdom and will would be done in this time. And praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.